Well, good morning, everybody. How's it going? Give it up for Gary and Sharon, if you would be so kind, even though they're not here. They're so uh, lovely. Hey, we got to get right to work. So uh, if you have a Bible, grab it or go download one on your phone. Go to Matthew chapter 20. Did you hear me say that? Matthew chapter 20. We're getting there. Three years to get here, and we got eight more chapters to go, so I say give us another three years and we'll be done. Um, first, let me apologize for making you wait outside uh, so long. Um, I preached too long in the first gathering, and so that's why I had to wait. It's my bad. We're still kind of figuring out the rhythm of this two-gathering thing, and sometimes I get talking about stuff, and well, you know how it goes. Anyway, Matthew chapter 20, we are in a series on the Gospel of Matthew, just kind of going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and if you were here last week, then you'll remember last week, we kind of had this interaction with, uh, between Jesus and this guy we called the rich young ruler. And there was this kind of interaction where the guy comes to Jesus. He says, uh, I, I want, uh, you know, I want to know what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, uh, it's really simple. You just need to sell everything, give it away to the poor, and then you'll, you'll have achieved perfection. And it was a hard story. Uh, I encourage you, if you weren't here last week, go back, listen to it. Um, but there was this interaction that took place after Jesus's interaction with this man between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Peter specifically says to Jesus, he says, well, um, Jesus, uh, this is great because uh, us, like me and the other disciples, we have done this. We've left everything, which they had uh, to follow you. So, so what are we going to get? Like, what's in this for us? What do we get? And Jesus's response to them was, uh, to Peter rather, was, well, you get me. You get me. And the question he was asking Peter and that Jesus is asking of us is, is that enough? Is that enough for you? Is, is God himself enough or do you need something else? Well, right after that, Jesus comes to this parable that he's going to teach to us this morning. And this is sort of an extension. This is kind of a part two of that interaction that Jesus was having with Peter, with his disciples, whereby he's going to lay out for us why he should be, why he is enough. And so that's what we're going to pick up. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 20, we're going to start right in verse 1. Here is what Jesus says first. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like. Now let's just stop there for a second. One of the main themes in the teaching of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew is this idea of the kingdom of heaven. If you remember, like, like a long time ago, like pre-COVID, pre-crazy global pandemic, like this might even have been before the internet and color television, we were in Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus starts his public ministry, and he starts with a sermon that would have got you in here on time, because it was one sentence, where he says, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus starts his public ministry with this one-sentence sermon uh, saying, like, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And then the rest of the gospel of Matthew, what we've been seeing is Jesus laying out for us what the kingdom of heaven is. And one of the things I think that's really helpful for us to do is to understand what the kingdom of heaven is. Because we throw this term around, but oftentimes we don't really understand it. Uh, a lot of times we have this really shallow I would say like low understanding of what the kingdom of heaven is, where we view the kingdom of heaven, not that dissimilar to what Sharon actually said her view of the gospel was, the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, sort of similar ideas, where it's kind of like this idea, like there's this future reality to the kingdom of heaven, where like I know that if I believe in Jesus, that if I, if I give mental assent to a set of uh, theological propositional truths, that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. That it's sort of like uh, fire insurance for your soul. That like, you know, the day of reckoning, after you die, you're going to stand. I don't know how this all works, but, you know, sort of in our mind, we have these pictures of like standing at the pearly gates and God's like, hey, like, why should I let you in? You're like, well, you kind of have to because I did that thing that I was supposed to do way back then. And look, at I got this piece of paper that says like, I get into heaven for free. So you, you got to let me in, God. And we kind of have that view of the kingdom of heaven. Let me be clear about something. There is a future reality to the kingdom of heaven. There is this idea of the kingdom of heaven that there will be a day where we will be in heaven with Jesus, worshiping him, and it'll be good and it'll be glorious. 
But the kingdom of heaven is so much more than that. The kingdom of heaven is so much more than just a future reality. There is a present reality to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Jesus' ministry shows us that explicitly, where we actually see him touching people, healing them, preaching, inviting sinners, those who think that they're on the outside of God's grace, into the inside of God's grace. He eats with people, he loves, he teaches, he preaches, he does all these things in the flesh, in the physical flesh bringing the kingdom of God to bear. Like you can actually touch and taste and see the kingdom of heaven because there's a present reality to the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven is not a physical kingdom. And another way that I think we often misunderstand the kingdom of heaven is that we have this idea that we can somehow build the kingdom of heaven here on earth. We, we see this uh, when people try and use political means as a way of bringing uh, the gospel to bear. So, so there are people who think if we can get our guy into government that we can bring the kingdom of God to bear. And this is not, this is not a particular, you know, one party thinks that, right? Everybody thinks that. Everybody thinks that their guy or their girl is the functional savior. And if their functional savior gets into government, that they will bring righteousness, they will bring justice, they will bring peace. But it's not true. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is not a theocracy, it's not, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. The idea of a Christian nation, it does not exist. The kingdom of heaven is, is spiritual. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is when Jesus has rule and reign over our lives. I mean, that's actually what we see if you go back to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, that's what you see in this interaction Jesus has with the rich young ruler. The reason that the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus. I mean, just think about it for a second. He's standing there in front of Jesus. Jesus says, all you have to do is sell your property and possessions and give it away to the poor. And then you can inherit eternal life. You can actually have me. You get me. And the man walks away. Why? Because Jesus didn't have rule and reign over his finances. He didn't have rule and reign over his heart. He didn't have rule and reign over this man. And so the kingdom of heaven is, is when Jesus is seated on the throne. When he's seated on the throne in your heart, the way the kingdom of heaven works is outside or inside out, rather. He comes into our lives and he, Jesus comes into our lives and he changes us and he transforms us. And the result of his changing and transforming us is that we live differently. And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, we have to understand that he's talking about, he's inviting us into a reality where he has rule and reign over our lives. And, and I, I have been alive, I'm not as old as, this isn't going on the internet, so I can say stuff like this. I'm not as old as Gary and Sharon, but I am pretty old, 40, 41, the big 4-1. And in my lifetime, I, I cannot think of a, some of you are like, that's not old. You could be my kid. Um, but in my lifetime, I have never felt a moment where it has been like, more palpable that the world is hungry for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven where there is peace, where there is justice, where there is righteousness, where, uh, to quote Sally Lloyd-Jones, who is the writer of the Jesus Storybook Bible, where everything sad comes untrue, where the kingdom of heaven is, God is making sad things come untrue. Uh, I, I can't think of a moment where this has been, been more real, that our, our, our hearts, our, our collective hearts are longing for this. We want it. We, we need it. I mean, I, I think this is why, you know, maybe it's the, the Facebook or social media algorithms or the 24-hour news cycle. I'm not sure. But, uh, but, but it could also be that we have this longing in our heart uh, and, and it's causing politics to become the functional new religion. Again, where we think if we can vote a particular way or we can get a group of people to vote a particular way that we can actually bring justice to bear on the world. It doesn't work. It always comes up short. It always comes up empty because until Jesus is seated on the throne, we will not know what it feels like to experience peace, to experience righteousness, to experience justice, to experience the brokenness in our lives, the sad things in our lives coming untrue. It's not just true on a, on a societal level, it's true on a personal level. We long. We all have longing. Some of us are, 
are lonely and we're longing for a companion. And we think when we have that companion, right, it's this idea of like Jerry Maguire syndrome, like when I find that perfect someone, like they're going to look me in the eye and it's going to be wonderful. We're going to have this moment and I'm going to say to them, you complete me. I mean, anyone who's been married for longer than four seconds knows that there's no such thing as a person who completes you. And all the married people are like, amen. Uh, some, some of us think if we could just achieve a job that would pay a particular amount of money, we would experience contentment and happiness. If we could just get a house a particular size, if we could just have something, there's something elusive, it's out there. If I could have that out there, then I would be happy. Then I would have peace. Then I would know what it feels like to experience the kingdom of heaven. And the reality that Jesus wants you to see is that until he is seated on the throne of your heart, you will not know peace. You will not know justice. You will not know righteousness. You will not know the reality of the broken things in your life coming untrue. He has to be seated on the throne. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, and then look at what he says next. He's going to give us a parable. He does this often, teaches in parables. Parables are like small stories, short stories that have big truths or, or that communicate big truths or have big implications. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and then sent them out into his vineyard. So Jesus is painting a picture for us. Let me just set this up. He's painting a picture for us. Remember what he's talking about. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And then he's going to use this kind of metaphor, this parable language to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he says there's a landowner. The landowner is God. God owns a vineyard. He's got a whole bunch of work that needs to be done on his land. So he comes to hire some workers. The workers are you and me. And then he agrees that he will pay the workers a denarius, which is the equivalent of a, a, a day's wage to work in the vineyard. And that denarius represents the grace of God in our lives. It's a picture of what we receive when, when we say yes to working in Jesus's vineyard, or, or to use the kingdom language, when we enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, remember, this is a parable, meaning it's a somewhat of a metaphor, which means we're, we're not supposed to take this literally. So really important for us to understand that what Jesus is not saying here is that in order to uh, get my grace, you need to work in my land, that you have to work for my grace. You have to work for my love. You have to work to be a part of my kingdom. Jesus is actually going to communicate, as you'll see in just a few verses, he's going to communicate the complete opposite of that. That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. So we can't pull this out and interpret it literally, but what he's saying is, uh, landowner goes to the marketplace, hires a bunch of guys, they're going to work a day, he's going to pay them uh, a wage for the day, a fair wage for the day. And then look at what it says next, in the next verse. Later, okay, about nine in the morning, he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace, and what were they doing? They were doing nothing. Okay, so let me just give us a sense of what's going on here. So a typical uh, day of work for a first century Palestine, a Palestinian person was a 12-hour workday, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Okay, so this isn't like a government job, okay, all you government workers. I can make fun of you because I'm a pastor and I only work one hour a week, so I'm allowed to make fun of you. But, but these guys would normally work a 12-hour day. The landowner goes back to the marketplace to get more workers because there's more work that needs to be done. He comes when? Like three hours later. Okay, so he comes three hours later to look for some workers, and he sees some guys in the marketplace, and what are they doing? Nothing. They're doing nothing. So, so these are like, I don't know, classic, lazy uh, millennial, like teenager type people showing up late, wanting to leave early, uh, you know, wanting to know if they can work from home on the first day. Like, hey, when do I get paid again? Can you forward me like my paycheck in advance? Like, is that something you do here? You know, like these are the guys. I mean, actually, the reason these people are still in the marketplace, the reason that they haven't actually been hired, there's actually probably one of two reasons. First one is because they got there late, they slept in. Or second reason is because all the other uh, employees, or employers rather, have come looked at them and said, eh, these guys don't look like they could cut it. So we're, we're, we're going to pass on them. So this landowner's coming back and he's looking at these workers who don't have what it takes, right? They're not good. They're not, 
Uh, they're not going to do a great job, most likely. They showed up late, possibly lazy. They're standing there doing nothing. But what does he say? Verse 4, he told them, the landowner told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. So, so think about this. Land, landowner comes, right? Looks at these guys. I'm not so sure about them. But I'm going to hire them anyway. I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to pay them whatever is right. Jesus here is painting a picture for us, remember, of the kingdom. He's painting a picture for us of what God is like. And what he's trying to communicate to us here is that there is this reality that is etched in the very essence of who God is, that he is full of grace. The word grace literally means unearned, unmerited favor. Now, it's probably helpful here, just for a second, to distinguish grace from a few other terms. One of the words that we often associate with God, these are words that are definitely a part of the, or these are characteristics, rather, that are definitely a part of the essence of who God is, is this idea of justice, right? Justice is this idea that we get what we deserve. We do bad things, we get punished. We get what we deserve. We do good things, we get rewarded. We get what we deserve. That's justice. Then there's this idea of mercy. What mercy is, is mercy is this idea that we don't get what we do deserve. We deserve to be punished, and yet we don't get punished despite the fact that we deserve to be punished. Our punishment is withheld. Definitely an aspect of the character and nature of who God is. But then there's this other concept, this other truth, this other reality. And this is the one that Jesus is trying to paint a picture for us uh, here in this parable. And that is this idea of grace. It's this idea that we get not what we deserve. It's this idea that we, get, we don't get what we do deserve. It's this idea that we do get what we don't deserve. That God gives to us. He grants us even though we don't deserve it. Even though we showed up late for work, even though we weren't that awesome uh, and deserving of working in anyone's field, God comes, He looks at us, He sees us, He sees you, and He says, I want you. I'm going to pick you. I will take you. What? But all the other guys said no. I didn't even come dressed for work today because I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to get hired again today because I didn't get hired yesterday too. And God says you. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, he actually paints a picture for us of what this look like, looks like. Here Jesus is giving uh, this like a metaphor or parable image. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, he actually pulls back the veil a little bit. And what he does in Ephesians 2 is he actually shows us what this looks like in the spiritual realm. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In other words, what Paul is saying here is like, you know, in a sense, you're worse off than this guy that showed up late for work and still, uh, still got hired, right? Like you, it's not just that you showed up late. It's that you didn't even get up out of bed. You didn't even go to the marketplace. You're, you're dead. Like, there's, what, like what can a dead person do? Like nothing. You're dead. Like you, no breathing, no heartbeat, no pulse, like you bring nothing to the table. You're dead. And Paul says the reason for that deadness is your transgressions and your sins. In other words, he's unpacking this theological idea that because of our sin, we are actually spiritually dead. While you may have a pulse, you may have a heartbeat, the reality is you, you have no connection, no ability, no innate desire in and of yourself Sorry, here, just give me a second. 
You have no ability in and of yourself to choose God. You're dead in your sins. And then look at what Paul says going forward. He makes this even more clear. Verse 2, he says, In which you used to live, so you're dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Apostle Paul says, it is a bad situation. You are not in a good situation. You are in a situation whereby your current spiritual state is one of complete alienation from God. That because of sin, because of Satan, because of the brokenness in our world, we're apart from Him. In other words, to use the, the metaphor language that Jesus is using in the parable, we're unworthy, we're unfit to be called to work in the vineyard of the landowner. But the Apostle Paul doesn't end there. Look at what he says in verse 4. He uses the word but. In other words, the story does not end here. And notice the language here. Notice who Paul puts forward as the one who bears the responsibility of reconciling this situation. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace, there's our word, the unearned, unmerited favor of God. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his, there's that word again, grace, unearned, unmerited favor, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by, there's that word again, grace, the unearned, unmerited favor of God that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one may boast. What's the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying that God in His grace, in His kindness, comes from His vineyard comes to the marketplace, sees us undeserving, unworthy, and he chooses us. He picks us. He doesn't pick us because we have something to offer. That's why the Apostle Paul says, you have been saved not by works. He picks us because he's good. And he grants on us the love of himself. In other words, there's, there's absolutely nothing that any of us bring to the table. There's nothing that any of us bring to the marketplace that makes God look at us and say, I'm going to pick them. We don't deserve it, but he gives it. And for Jesus, this is one of the, if not the central idea, the central tenet that separates Christianity from every other idea in the marketplace. If you're on a spiritual journey, new to church, checking things out, trying to figure out who God is, what he's like, there's this idea in the world that, that we've been told that all religions basically teach the same thing. You know, there's this kind of idea that, that as long as we try hard to be good people, love our neighbor, obey some version of the golden rule, that we can, you know, earn our way to heaven. And what Jesus is doing here is he's coming in, he's saying that's absolutely not the way that God is, that's not the way that the world works, and that's not how we're called to relate to him. That God is different from every other religion. He's different from every other ideology. He's different from, from every other ism that has ever existed ever. Every other religion, idea, philosophy of life has some idea etched into it that you have to do something to make yourself into something. 
You have to be a good person. You have to try really hard. You, you know, the religious ideas are that you have to go to church or perhaps pray a certain number of times facing a particular direction at particular times of the day. You have to eat certain foods and, and not eat certain foods. There's certain words you're supposed to say and words that you can't say. There's certain types of things you're supposed to do and not do. And Jesus is saying that's not how it works. You know, secular humanism, kind of the classic West Coast, spiritual but not religious kind of idea that uh, this is sort of the, the, the water that we swim in here in the city of Victoria. Just this idea that, you know, if you could just love your neighbor as yourself, like anybody could actually even do that. But if you could just try hard to love your neighbor as yourself, that you can make yourself good enough to get yourself into heaven. These new age spirituality ideas, these kind of sort of the law of attraction or, or karma, karmaic spirituality, that if I can give off positive energy into the universe, that the universe will give positive back to me. In other words, I will get what I deserve. I will get what I'm entitled to. And Jesus comes in, he enters in, and he says, that's not how God works. He enters in and he says, God actually sees through all of this. He sees through the facade. He sees through our feeble attempts to make ourselves into something. He sees right into our hearts. He sees right into your hearts. He sees the brokenness. He sees the hurt. He sees the despair. He sees the loneliness. He sees the mess. He comes to the marketplace and he doesn't see workers that he's impressed with. He sees impoverished people who are in need. And he says, I want you. I want you. It's good news. It's good news, friends, but it gets better. Look at what Jesus says next. Second half of, second half of verse 5, Jesus says this. He went out again. He went out about noon, and he went out about 3 in the afternoon, and he did the same thing, and then he went out again at 5, so he's gone out three more times. So he went out first at 6, called the first guys, went back out at 9, called the lazy millennials. And then here he is. He's called a whole bunch of other people. He's gone out at noon, three, and now he's gone out at five. Okay, these are, these are like, these are the people I can't even get up by the crack of dinner to get to work. So he's out at five in the afternoon. He went out, found uh, still others standing around. They're just standing around. They're still doing nothing. He says, why have you been standing around all day doing nothing? Verse seven, because no one hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and you work in my vineyard. So here we have a group of people who, if the first group were, were unhirable, this, this next group, these three groups of people that Jesus has gone out to hire, these people are even worse off. Their, their plight is even worse than the first group. They're less employable. They're less impressive. They have less to bring to the table. Their resumes, blank piece of paper. That's all they got. And yet Jesus says, come work in my field. And we get this beautiful picture here of a God who keeps coming back, right? Uh, the landowner keeps leaving his vineyard to come back to the marketplace to hire more and more and more people. And we get this picture of a God who continually comes, relentlessly pursues, relentlessly comes after, looking for more and more and more people, even those who are less and less impressive. We have a God whose grace never runs out for us. He's constantly coming after us. Jesus is giving us the very heart of God, that he pursues us. When you think about Jesus and you think about what he has done, like Gary made this kind of offhanded comment in the video where he's like, he's done a lot. He's done a lot. He has done a lot. He's the only God who gets up off the throne in heaven and comes down to earth. This picture that Jesus is painting for us here of, of a landowner 
coming back to the marketplace is metaphorical of Jesus actually coming from heaven to earth, entering into human flesh and pursuing us. And Jesus' pursuit leads him all the way to the cross where he is willing to become obedient to death, even death on a cross, where he's willing to lay his life down for us. Workers who were not good enough to work in the field, Jesus comes in and he says, I'm going to make you good enough by laying down my life, by taking your inadequacies, by taking your brokenness, by taking your guilt, by taking your shame onto my own shoulders. I will bear the weight of responsibility for you by going to the cross. And he continues to pursue his grace is limitless. His grace is unending. He continues to come after us time and time and time again. We get this picture of a God who is never done with us. One of, one of the things that, that we've been doing in our community group during COVID, COVID has made it very difficult to be a community group uh, because you can't be together. But we've been trying to be together. And so what we've done in our community group is we've broken our group up into three smaller groups and we've all kind of made each other our safe six uh, and we meet for uh, a meal once a week and one of the things we've been doing in our in our meal times together is we have two people uh, set up to share their stories and so this uh, last Thursday we had uh, my wife Kelly uh, she shared her story and then we had my friend Mark uh, share his story now if you know uh, if you know my wife Kelly she is um, how do you describe her? Well, she's lovely, first of all. Let me just start by saying that. But not only is she lovely, uh, she is about as, at least her growing up, was about as churchy-churchy as you can be. Uh, so she grew up going to uh, Sunday school in the morning. She would go to Sunday morning church services. She would go to Sunday evening church services, and they would go to Wednesday night church services. She went to Christian school. At uh, the Christian school, they had to like wear particular clothing. Like they literally would measure how long your dress was to make sure that it was like, like Christian enough. Like you had to have a Christian enough outfit to go to the school. She listened to uh, Debbie Gibson. That was like, if you talk to Kelly about the music she listened to when she was a teenager, she listened to Debbie Gibson. Okay, I don't even know who that is, but I think it's like some Christian person from the 80s with big hair. Bad music. Go look it up. So Kelly shared her story, super churchy, churchy, super Christian. Then we had my buddy Mark share his story. Mark couldn't be any more opposite than Kelly. Mark uh, was a military guy, is a military guy. Uh, functionally, like I don't know what this would kind of look like in the most practical of terms, but he's a functional heathen, okay, or was a functional heathen. I mean, he was doing all the things you would expect a young guy to do who's in the military, unmarried, and doesn't really have a lot of commitments, and there was this beautiful reality as you listen to these two people share their stories on Thursday night. We're sitting there in our living room and I'm, I'm listening to this. And all I could hear was the relenting pursuit of God for his kids. See, my, my wife grew up most of her life believing that because I had done all of these things, God must have been really proud of me. He's lucky to have me on his team. I checked off all the boxes. And then there came a moment in my wife's life where she realized that there were just some boxes she couldn't check anymore. And she was broken. She was devastated. She was crushed. And God met her in the deepest place of her brokenness. He pursued her. And she met with him. And he was tender with her. And he loved her. Mark, on the other hand, again, doing all the things you would imagine a young guy in the military would be doing. And on the darkest night, perhaps, of his life, he has this kind of dark night of the soul where he cries out to God, God, I need you. 
and literally Mark prays, would you send somebody into my life who would help me, who would save me? Those were his exact words. Shortly thereafter, he meets his now wife, Jessie. Through a whole bunch of circumstances, Jesse comes to faith in Jesus through West Village. And Mark, while he was a good husband who was supportive of his wife's spiritual journey, I mean, he, had, he wanted nothing to do with it. He, he would mock her, right? We call community groups, like our slang term is CG. So whenever Jesse would be going off to, you know, Thursday night would roll around, big potluck dinner at the Sinusol's house. Like, oh, you're going to cult gathering again, hey? CG, cult gathering. Wanted nothing to do with coming to anything to do with West Village, but slowly over time, Jesse comes to faith in Jesus. Slowly over time, all of a sudden, Mark starts showing up every once in a while. Slowly over time, he would come for dinner. And then we would do something Jesus-y, and he'd be like, oh, I gotta get home and take the kids to bed. And then slowly over time, the kids didn't need to go to bed quite so early, and he would stick around. And slowly over time, slowly over time, slowly over time, to just about a year and a half ago, Mark getting baptized, giving his life to Jesus. What is that? It's the unrelenting pursuit of God. That's what C.S. Lewis calls the hounds of heaven coming after us. And you heard it in Gary and Sharon's story. He's never done with us. He's always coming after us. He's always pursuing our hearts. He's always wanting to love us. He's always wanting to give more and more and more of himself to us. And like some of these people, it was the literal 11th hour. They are sitting there hoping to make some money to feed their family. And I have no doubt that for many of them, they're thinking, this is it, I'm done. It's too late for me. And yet he comes. He invites It's never too late. He's never done. He always wants us and he always has more of himself for us. And the only question for us is will we respond? Will we receive his invitation? Jesus goes on, says this in verse 8 when. Evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. So he's going to call all the workers together. It's payday. Everyone's going to get paid. Okay, bring them all in. Start with the guys that got here right before the crack of dinner and we'll work our way back. So the workers who were hired at about five in the afternoon, they come in and they each receive a denarius. So these guys who worked an hour get a full day's wage for working an hour. So when those who came in, who were hired first, they expected to receive more. That stands to reason, right? Like if you were the one that worked 12 hours and you're watching all this go down, you're watching like the, you know, the lazy guy who just rolled in gets paid a full day's wage. You're thinking to yourself, man, I hit the jackpot. This is going to be good. So you pull out your calculator, you're quickly doing the math, and you're thinking to yourself, we're about to get paid. Show me the money. Verse 11, when they receive, uh, sorry, uh, so then he expected, they expected to receive more. Sorry, second half of verse 10, but each one of them also received a denarius. What? Wait a minute. How does this work? So the guys who worked an hour get paid a full day's wage. The guys who worked a full day's wage or worked a full day get paid a full day's wage. That doesn't make any sense. That's not fair. Jesus isn't a good business owner. He's not a good capitalist. He's a horrible union, uh, union rep. What's going on? You see, it's not a coincidence that Jesus uses this metaphor of boss and worker and wage to paint a picture of what his kingdom is like. Because Jesus is kind of doing like a Jedi mind trick here where he's actually wanting to draw out of us 
this response that this isn't fair. This isn't fair. He's, he's trying to expose our heart. He wants us to look at this and think to ourselves, that doesn't make any sense at all. And then look at what happens in verse 11. When they received it, as it worked the full day, he began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and those, uh, sorry, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. They get their pay and they complain. It's not fair. We worked harder. We did more. They only worked an hour. We worked 12. They got here at the end of the day. We've been here all day. It was cooler when they got here. They didn't pull their weight. Why did you make them equal to us? Now, don't miss what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to expose in these workers this idea that they have somehow earned the grace of God. That they had something to add to what God had given them. And notice what happens because of it. They can't receive what God has for them. They loved the idea of the grace of God when it looked like they were going to cash in. But the second they didn't get what they wanted from him, they felt like God was unfair. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, the grace of God irritates us because deep down... We still think grace should operate as a reward for, or at least a recognition of our prior faithful service. Every form of jealousy, all coveting of what God has given to others, all seeing God's distribution of gifts as related to performance rather than his fatherly pleasure and enjoyment is infected with this. What is at the core of the issue that these workers have with the landowner? It's they have a sense of entitlement. That they have done something to earn more than what they received. See, we love the grace of God when it is applied to us, but when it's applied to someone else, we hate it. It exposes that we believe we have earned His grace. So let me ask us a couple of questions. Are you tired? Are you weary? Does your relationship with God feel like a long day of work in the hot sun? Then it's possible. It's possible that you've added something to Jesus' work. And it's possible that because of that, you will miss out on him. But for some of us, we aren't the worker who showed up early. We're the worker who shows up late. Heck, we're, we're not even the 11th hour worker. Uh, we're, we're still in the marketplace. We're still in the marketplace and we still feel too unworthy to take the job, too undeserving to take the job. And just like the person who showed up on time ready to work, who's been counting and adding up all the work that they've done, you're adding and counting in a different way. You're adding and counting in all the ways that you don't deserve the love of Jesus. And what Jesus is saying to all of us, every single one of us, is stop counting. Stop adding and start receiving. Receive His grace. Jesus closes by saying this. 
He answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? In other words, Jesus is saying, I can be lavish with my grace in whatever way I see fit. And then look at how Jesus ends. So the last will be first and the first will be last. Is Jesus saying here that those who showed up late to the party are the most important in the kingdom? Of course not. That would undermine everything he said up to this point. If you go back to Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus, before he starts this parable, says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. He completely inverses, uh, inverts rather, the statements. So first it's the first will be last, and then it's the last who will be first. Like it's totally backwards, flipped on its head. In other words, what is Jesus saying? In my kingdom, everyone's equal. There, there is no hierarchy that we will all go marching into the kingdom of heaven. We all come into the kingdom of heaven as broken sinners who have been saved by grace. Or as one author put it, we are simply a bunch of blind beggars who have found bread telling other blind beggars where they can eat. And Jesus' invitation to all of us is to receive his grace. And the question is, will we? Will we? Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, we, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your kindness shown to us in Jesus. And I pray for our weary hearts that are so desperate to work and toil and earn that we would receive. That right now in this moment, we would receive your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. I'm gonna invite us to respond through communion. If you have your communion supplies, you can take those out right now. Communion is um, something we do each and every week. And the reason that we do this each and every week is because we want to be reminded. Oh, man, I always have a hard time getting this out. Just am I the only one with fat thumbs? No? Okay. Well, I've already done it once. So I'm just going to leave it to the side here for a second. Good job, Dulce. Uh, the, the reason we, we take communion each and every week is because we want to be reminded of the grace of God. The grace of God that we just talked about is actually made manifest in the person and work of Jesus, and communion is a, a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It, it's actually our opportunity to say yes to receiving the grace of God. Jesus has this great line uh, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11, I think, where he says, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you burned out? Then come to me and I will give you rest. We can come to Jesus and actually take him in. And so I'll, I'll invite you to, to take the body of Christ. Hold it up. This is his body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. And this juice which represents the shed blood of Christ, shed for our sins a picture that there is nothing that we can do to earn the grace of God shed for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Jesus, we ask that you would fill our hearts and our minds with your grace. You would saturate us with your grace and that we would know in this moment that there is nothing that we have to do to earn your love, to earn your favor, but that you have been relentlessly pursuing us. May we stop running. May we receive right now in this moment, we pray, Jesus. Amen.
final thought as we meditate and and head on out uh just kind of continuing in ephesians 2 uh verse 4 but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in the kindness towards us in jesus christ for by grace you have been saved and this is not of your own doing it is a gift of god not as a result of work so no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and so let us go forth and walk in those good works go and be the church